Welcome to Wellness Talks, a UFHR wellness series where we meet with subject matter experts from across the University of Florida and UF Health to learn more about the latest in their field. Today we have with us Dr. Katherine Striley to talk with us about mental health awareness and stigma as it relates to depression and anxiety. Dr. Striley is a psychiatric epidemiologist here at the University of Florida. Dr. Striley received a Master of Social Works in 1989 and a doctorate of philosophy in social work from the Brown School in, at Washington University in St. Louis in 2002. She also completed the Master of Science in Epidemiology at Washington University School of Medicine. Her research aims are to increase recognition of the need for health screening, mental health, and behavioral health services, and to decrease barriers to those services. She has experience in community-engaged research, including recruitment and retention of diverse community members and in drug use, abuse, and misuse epidemiology. Welcome, Dr. Shriley. Thank you very much for taking the time to meet with us today. Did I miss anything in your introduction that would be relevant to our discussion today with regards to mental health awareness stigma um, as it relates to depression and, and anxiety? I was, um, the only thing is my clinical background. I was a licensed clinical social worker in the state of Missouri for a decade and was also a licensing supervisor and um, I'm still nationally accredited as a clinical social worker. Fantastic. That's, uh, we're very grateful to have you here with us today and to learn more about, you, uh, more about your work and specifically this, the, this topic. I'm very happy to be here with you. Of course. Nolani, do you want to take the next question? Sure. So let's start with the basics. Um, how would you define mental health and wellness? And why do you think mental health awareness is important? So um, I actually want to um, refer to an article, um, uh, a, a very recent article from the WHO, but just um, to let you um, think about this for a minute, the World Health Organization is of course, one of the, the places where um, there is a major uh, cadre of people who are charting the prevalence of mental health disorders globally and looking to make sure that um, disorders are diagnosed. And notice that I'm saying the word disorder. So when we talk about um, mental health problems, we're not talking about diseases that have a biological marker that we can suddenly say somebody's diseased versus not, but we're talking about disorders where people's functioning um, is, and their symptoms are at a place where it might slip from normal into pathological. And um, this article um, towards a new definition of mental health um, where the senior author is Norman Sartorius. Um, and Norman has got an honorary degree from UF and has come here and spoken before. And he used to be in charge of the mental health section of the World Health Organization. And, and this article um, identifies a new definition as mental health, um, as a, a dynamic state of internal equilibrium. And, and it goes on quite a bit further. I don't wanna get lost in words, but I wanna think about that um, dynamic because we change as we grow and we're human beings and things affect us. And mental health doesn't mean that you're not affected by things that are going on within and around you. We still have symptoms. We have, we, our sleep gets interrupted. We're not eating the way we should. Um, our functioning may change and, and, and have some um, rising and some falling, uh, depending on what's going around us. We have grief. I mean, no one can be listening to the news today with what's happening in Ukraine without experiencing grief 
from the trauma that people are experiencing and the displacement. Um, and certainly with the pandemic, we've been through just a huge amount of isolation and loneliness and trauma and, and problems as we've um, grappled with a, a new illness that was devastating in some parts of the world. And, and death, many of us have had death and disease in our family. So those, so that dynamic equilibrium sets us up for understanding um, that mental health isn't static, that, that we, we do change over time and we, we change with events. But, um, you know, I think for college students that it's really hard, really easy um, to, to let that disequilibrium happen in such a way that it start affecting our, affecting our future plans and our ability to visualize ourselves in, in a certain way. So, so this definition goes on, and, and I really want to make sure that I've communicated this part, because it says that um, basic cognitive and social skills, the ability to recognize, express, and modulate one's own emotions, as well as empathize with others, and flexibility and ability to cope with adverse life events and function in social roles. And it goes on from there. So it's pretty complicated. But the idea here is that one's internal world and external world are in some kind of an equilibrium where we're functioning well and we're enjoying um, our, our best capacity. And again, going back to that, making future plans um, you know, my concern for a lot of college students is that it feels like all of the pressures and all of the concerns aren't going to change and are going to be static and are very difficult to cope with. And we start adjusting our plans from maybe we, when we first came to college, we wanted to be a doctor, a physician, and maybe a psychiatrist, which we need more psychiatrists, so yay. Certainly. And then we start kind of thinking, oh, well, maybe I can't do that. And I'm not good enough to do that, whatever our dream was. And then maybe we start falling into some more symptoms of anxiety where we're feeling like we're not as capable, we're not doing as well. And that can cause, give rise to feelings of depression. And then, then we engage in risky behavior, like more substance use. So it's, it is a very dynamic system. Um, and again, my, I have a big concern about, I want people to get treatment because I want them to be the person, the best person they could be and the person with the most joy and the most happiness in their lives. And that means that sometimes we have to ask for help and asking for help isn't bad. Asking for help is a really positive step that we can take to make sure that we are becoming um, aware of self-talk, for instance, of where our coping maybe has broken down and we're maybe leaning on things, we're self-isolating, we're engaging in behavior that is too risky and we wouldn't have engaged in um, maybe at a previous time where our functioning was stronger and our coping and resilience skills were higher. So um, that's probably a lot more than you wanted in this one question, Nalani, oh, that, but that's... Yeah. That's when I when I think of health, I really think about that partially that dynamic ability to respond and to respond in a way that in the future you're going to look back on and you're going to say, yeah, I did well. Yes, no, absolutely. It, it's uh, definitely it was a great definition for, you know, provides us with a great introduction into 
today's topic. And, and like you mentioned, so mental health is a very broad spectrum. It's going to be very hard to cover it within a, a, a short span of time. And for our audience members of the campus community, whether it's students, faculty, or staff, this is going to be very important to, to know. Um, and given the definition that you provided us, that it's a kind of a dynamic equilibrium, how does someone, I guess, uh, acquire a mental disorder or, or illness? How does that equilibrium get shifted? Um, are there, um, I'm guessing there, there are some environmental factors, but are there some also genetic factors? H how could one identify those? Oh, yeah, of course, like everything, there's, there is both. And, you know, some diseases more like schizophrenia and things like that have higher genetic loading than depression and anxiety disorders do. But, but if you think about um, exhausting your coping and your resiliency skills because of things like adverse childhood events that you're still carrying, perhaps a family history that gives you a proclivity to be more isolating mm -hmm. and to fall into more of a depressive cycle um, rather than um, maybe um, doing things that are more outward focused and maybe um, checking some of that the, the self-talk and getting help for maybe some sleep disorders, eating well. I mean, so many things. And I think um, that kind of goes back to that definition of mental health, because really health should include mental health. Yeah. And in so many ways anymore, we, we, we seem to have cut ourselves up into pieces. There's like neurological health, there's like mental health, there's body health, physical health. And and the way we feel about each of those things seems to be different. And the stigma that we experience, the, the um, instead of saying stigma, I'm just going to say the, the hesitancy uh, that we have to address those things um, is, is different. And the systems that we've set up in our society are different. So how does one develop a mental illness? One can have a really, really high um, genetic loading towards a disease and still never develop schizophrenia, for instance, uh, you know, 90% genetic loading maybe and never develop it. So it's never deterministic. Um, but again, if you think about it as that dynamic equilibrium, something's been happening and perhaps there's a, an underlying weakness in some way or proclivity to lean a little one way rather than another. And, um, and, and so I think it's really important that um, we think about mental health disorders as having clinically significant impairment or distress that's associated with them. So when the person or their family members or someone else feels that their, that their distress has risen or their impairment in functioning has risen to a level where they need help, then that's kind of where we start saying mental health, a mental health a, a disorder has arisen. And, you know, we often use like a fever comparison where we're thinking about a thermometer and certain, I mean, not all of us have exactly the same body temperature. There's a bigger range than they first thought. Um, and symptoms are like that. We have, you know, we, we may have underlying differences in how we sleep and in how we react to things. Some of us are more reactive than others, but when it gets to a level where it's really interfering with our daily life, that's when um, hopefully someone around us will care enough to say, suggest we get help and we might start thinking we need help. And then the, the disorder part really relates to diagnosis. So that if you're 
the symptoms you're experiencing in that pattern and timing um, fits with a diagnostic category, then you'll be diagnosed with having a disorder. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Uh, that, that does help because I, I knew it was going to be a difficult question because like you mentioned earlier, it is a dynamic state and, and mental health is very broad. And we've noticed how, especially for example, something that we all experienced, uh, the COVID pandemic, each one of us reacted to it slightly differently, but it did put a, a heavy burden on us um, mentally and socially. And, and so we, we saw an increased um, need in, in mental health services and uh, and we also saw how individuals reacted to it differently, just depending on um, many different individualistic factors. So that, you know, that kind of uh, is a very great explanation for that. Thank you. Okay, so for the next question, um, what are some of the major risk factors that you think we should be aware of when it comes to mental health disorders? Well, um, family history, which I mentioned, adverse childhood experience, which I also mentioned, we know those are quite predictive of developing a depression or an anxiety disorder. Um, life events, and, and we have to remember good life events are also potentially risk factor, not just negative ones. Anything that's very, a big change, um, where, where again, our coping skills might not be a good match, for the amount of change that is happening in pandemic, you know, thinking about what's been going on with COVID. This has stressed all of our coping skills and being able to, to deal with the level of change we've been experiencing pretty rapidly. Um, you know, sleep, sleep problems, um, other illnesses, um, a, a lot of, uh, again, going back to that physical versus mental distinction, um, which I wish would go away because um, they're all both, but many, many physical problems can put us at a higher risk for then developing um, some kind of a, a mood disorder or an anxiety disorder. Um, medications um, and substances, substance use can also increase our risk. Um, there's been many, many studies over the past 40 years, which comes first you know, substance use or depression or, and an anxiety. And really it's a both and um, one, one can use substances to kind of try to deal with symptoms, but using substances can end up having the development of symptoms too. So adding risky behavior like substance abuse to having some mental health symptoms, not a good mix. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you've, you've highlighted this uh, a little bit earlier in the in your um, explanation, but based on some of the literature, uh, a consistent issue that I've seen recently is that people often have um, a hesitancy to to seek mental health treatment services when when it's needed. Um, from in in your professional opinion, why why do you think that is, and what are some of the barriers to accessing these services as well? Well, depending on the model that you're using, I'm, I'm going to simplify it and just say they're, they're structural or personal. There are huge structural barriers around mental health and substance use treatment. And, you know, if you think about um, uh, just the lack of psychiatrists in most of the world, um, it's, it's way, it, the population is completely insufficient. And then if you drill down to the U.S., um, 
the, the workforce we have in mental health would include psychiatric nurses, clinical social workers, um, therapists, family therapists, um, psychologists, psychiatrists, and there are insufficient resources in most of our communities, even if they were on your health plan. And that's another structural issue is that insurance companies, in spite of the fact that we passed a major parity law in 2008, we do not have parity in mental health and physical health care. And psychiatrists, for instance, many choose not to participate with uh, insurance carriers and they are working with private money. So people will choose to, to get care privately with a therapist of any kind. Um, in insurance, um, uh, there are lots of barriers to insurance, including high, high co-pays. Um, and again, this is a problem that persists. Um, the National um, Association of Mental Illness um, in a report called, uh, let me see here, The Doctor Is Out, details some of these problems with lack of parity. And um, so, so not covered by your insurance, you don't have insurance, there's no providers in your area, copay is too high, you don't know where to go. We forget that these are huge systems that have a lot of rules, and not everybody is able to just negotiate and understand who to go to or where to go or to go twice, not to pick the first therapist that may not be a good match. And some people just give up there. Oh, I didn't like them. And they don't go again. Um, you know, things we wouldn't do if we were getting a, a new roof on our house, we'd get bids from multiple providers, but we don't, we don't treat our care systems that way. We do physical more and more, right? If we go to a specialist and we don't like one, we go to another one. Exactly. But, but just thinking about the, the, the systemic factors, they're a major barrier for getting mental health care. And rural is, if you live in a rural area, your access to care is so low uh, because there just aren't providers there. Now with telehealth and pan, in the pandemic, I think that's a really wonderful trend. And I think that that may open up um, a lot more opportunities. Then we get into the personal and family barriers. And some of these are just like in people's heads from the standpoint of they expect there to be a problem when there really isn't one. So I've heard many younger people talk about, well, you know, I, I wouldn't want to embarrass my parents if that got out that I was seeking care. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, if you have a conversation with your parents, you may find out your parents want you to get the care that you need or your family's never really been around mental health care and they don't really understand it. And so there may be a barrier that's related to, you know, I don't know that it works. I don't know who those people are. I mean, we may not be able to trust them with our family history or what's going on. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that's all outside of the, I don't wanna be diagnosed, I don't wanna be labeled. And then there's all the stigma around, I don't wanna be weak. Mm -hmm. I don't want people to know I have a problem. Um, what will they think about me if they know I've gone for mental health care? What if my records get out and I can't get a job or I can't get into the military or I can't whatever, whatever, whatever. Yeah. So, so there are a lot, of, a lot of barriers there that have to do, um, I believe, more with, with um, what people, sorry about that, with what people sort of imagine will happen than the reality of what happens. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that definitely is, um, 
I've, I've heard that multiple times from uh, several wellness talks that we've done um, is that this, um, although it's, it's, it's one body, whether it's physical or mental, sometimes with physical health, it's easy to see that, you know, uh, an arm is broken, for example, or you, it, it's easy to visualize. And so others could be a bit more empathetic, but when it's something internal, um, such as with mental health, it's, it's hard to one describe that and, and hard for the others around you to, to be able to perceive what you're, what you may be going through. So, um, it definitely could be a very difficult situation to be in. Yeah, I like the ads on TV now because I think they're really, really highlighting that just telling somebody get over it and yeah. uh, is, is not going to cut it and that people can make the call and can try to get some help. And, and the reason I'm saying try to get some help is, again, there are all those barriers in the way. But we've learned if you're a college student or, or if you're in any way associated with UF, you've learned persistence. Yeah. You've learned you can't just try once, you keep trying until you get what you want and what you've planned. And we just need to think of health healthcare the same way, that it may require some persistence on our parts. Okay, thank you for that answer. Um, you started to touch on this a little bit with your last answer when it came to stigma as a barrier, um, but to just dive in a little bit further, what role do you think stigma plays in the way mental health is viewed in society today? And how does it compare to what you have seen in the past? Well, um, obviously, I'm not terribly young, and and so I've seen I've seen you know stigma against various things come and go, and so um, you know if if we think about if we put into a context which I'm doing because of the way you asked me that question, um, stigma, then then we know that some things may seem okay at one point and not okay at another. And again, having that sort of a longer view on, on being a human being and being situated in a particular culture at a particular time of history um, does, does help us understand that, that there, these stigmas do come and go. But we do seem to have a little bit of a persistent stigma against, as you said, um, things you can't see. And, and um and, and not having a language, many of us are very much hampered by not having a language to describe how we feel and our symptoms other than to say things like, it hurts, I'm suffering. Um, that, I think all of that increases this feeling that must be, it must be something wrong with me. And, and if it's something wrong with me, then I don't want people to know that there's something wrong with me because then they're gonna treat me differently and I don't wanna be treated differently. And that's that application of stigma that we somehow, our identity will change from well and whole and healthy to sick and somehow impaired, less than, hurt. And, and, and that's true for almost anything. I mean, I have, I have a cast on my arm right now, um, you know, it's people see it and people respond to it. And, and we're, we're all, I think, afraid of having our identity shaped by what's wrong with us rather than by what's right with us. And, and so do I think it's better? Do I think it's worse? I honestly think it's better right now in the context of the pandemic because so many of us are talking, are speaking out about it and saying, 
this has been really hard. We've been isolated. We've been alone. We haven't been able to get the social support we're used to. Our human capital has been down. Our resource access has been down. We haven't had fun the way we used to. So as we've been all talking about that and more and more reports come out about more overdose deaths, you know, depression, the rates of depression and anxiety are up at least about 26% globally. You know, the more that we're seeing these things and talking about these things, I think we are reducing stigma and normalizing it. And that's what we're really aiming for is that all of us understand that as human beings, we aren't always up for coping with the situation perfectly well. And it may affect us and it may impair us and cause us distress. That's uh, very beautifully explained. And I just wanted to note that I didn't know that you had a cast when I made my example. So um, <laughs> that was a complete coincidence. Um, jumping in kind of to follow up on that point a little bit further, um, uh, in terms of stigma, what can we as individuals or as a campus community do to combat some of the issues, either in terms of uh, stigma or access to care or barriers to, uh, to getting access to care? Um, thinking about it kind of from a, me, you, and, and Nolani, or as a campus community, what can we do together? I think, I think talking about it is really, really powerful. I think sharing, um, that we, we share things. I mean, I, I, um, I and my family certainly benefited from the help of a family therapist. Mm -hmm. I think sharing things like that is helpful, letting people know this is normal. Um, you know, one in two people are, are going to have a, a, a problem with depression lifetime. I mean, it's this is we're human beings and just accepting that, um, as you as you said, you know, just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. And actually, you can see it because you can look in somebody's eyes and you can see their distress and you can see that they're experiencing some um, lack of equilibrium, some disequilibrium in terms of their reaction. So, so I think talking about it is really um, one of the most important things we can do. Empathetic listening, listening to other people who are, who are having some problems, being ready to help. I think the medical, um, I mean, the uh, mental health first aid is a really wonderful pro program. There's a lot of resources available online um, I was noting um, that um, there, there are NIH, SAMHSA, you know, NAMI, pretty much everybody now, as well as just our own university have many, many wellness resources and, and being willing to and able to share those with a friend. Hey, did you know, could, did you look at this webpage? You know, there's a screener here you could look at just to see if what's going on with you is something that you could get help for. And there's lots of help available. Mm -hmm. Keep going until you get a help that's right for you. Don't give up, be persistent. Um, you know, in giving those encouraging messages, I don't think you have to be um, uh, somebody who's necessarily trained in anything in order to be helpful. We, we've learned that with diversity, that we can be allies and advocates. And I think the same is true with mental health be an ally, learn to be an ally, learn to be an advocate. Thank you for that answer. So for the next question, we wanted to know, what are your suggestions on how we can prevent, manage, or cope with mental health disorders? 
Yeah, that's a pretty big question. And I think we're pretty close to out of time. So I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna say a couple things here. Um, you know, prevention, we need to start, you know, in my opinion, we would be teaching kids in preschool, which they're doing because of the pandemic now. And I'm really happy to see that things like, like mindfulness, like yoga, like, you know, meditation, like reading, um, positive, uplifting messages that help people understand that it's part of life to have grief, to have anger, um, play therapy, you know, and just all the way through school, making it normal again for, for people to um, understand that if you're experiencing symptoms, there is some help and, and it, it's not a message about you at all. It does not affect your identity, except to say you're strong enough to get help. And you were quick to recognize it, yay. And you had friends who helped you recognize it. So I think there's a lot of um, positive things in terms of prevention. Management, we still have systems work we need to do. We really need true parity. Um, and that's true with coping too. And we don't have the resources on the healing end of things as much as we should, um, because we have as, as a society have undervalued mental health and underpromoted care for it. So that means political things, advocating again, electing people who are gonna ensure parity, uh, making sure our own, mental, our own medical insurance policies treat people fairly um, who need mental health care and voting for things in our local areas for children's um, uh, services as we have in, in Alachua County and uh, for additional services for people to get the care that they need. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. Our final question, and you've highlighted some of the, uh, these resources earlier, but do you have any additional resources or recommendations that you could give to our campus audience, which again are the, the, our entire campus community, so students, faculty, and staff, um, who are interested in learning more about maintaining and improving their mental health? Well, um, I, I just want to give a shout out to Dr. Lisa Merlot, who does a wonderful job with, with uh, the wellness.med.ufl.edu resources, which I think are very good. Um, also, we do have some good government resources. Um, CDC.gov um, um, has uh, mental health resources, including screeners that people can take. Um, they're very good resources because public health, mental health is public health. That's a, a, a really important message. And, and so um, the stress and coping resources there are very good. Um, the National Institute of Mental Health has a lot of fact sheets that I think are, are helpful for people who are experiencing questions um, and, and the substance and mental health and, uh, excuse me, what's the first S in SAMHSA? How can I forget that? Substance abuse, it was, I was right. And Mental Health Services Administration website, um, S-A-M-H-S-A-H-S-A.gov also has just a lot of resources, including one that I especially wanted to highlight, or two, I guess. Um, one is the National Suicide Prevention Life Lifeline. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if anybody's feeling suicidal, please get help please don't think it's gonna get better on, your, on its own. And then it has the Behavioral Health Treatment Services Locator and it allows you to find a location um, near you. And we, we published some work out of the last 10 years of data in the Healthy Minds study 
looking at people who got care on campus versus off campus and their satisfaction, and people are getting help both ways. So if you don't wanna get help on campus and there are good resources on, on, on campus, but if you don't wanna get help that way or if the waiting list is too long, go off campus, mm -hmm. just get help. Thank you so much. If you have anything that additional that comes up, feel free to email it to me and we'll put it on the website along with the, uh, the, the Swellness Talk. Um, a few additional resources that I wanted to highlight. So for students here on campus, the Counseling Wellness Center is a great resource for that. Uh, for graduate assistants who are under the Gator Care um, uh, Health Plan, they have access to uh, wellness or uh, talk space, the application that allows them to, to connect with a counselor via texting or even a phone call mechanism. Um, for faculty and staff, there's a mental health help access line that I'll share the information to that on the website. And for UF and UF health faculty and staff, there are there are the EAP helplines. And, and so I'll share all that information and resources to um, uh, our campus committee on the website. And so with that, um, I wanted to end our wellness talk for today. So thank you so much, Dr. Striley, for your time today and for sharing with us your expertise. I hope that today's session has been informative and, value, and valuable to all of our campus community. Um, as always, there will be an evaluation survey for this wellness talk. Um, that will be included in the video description along with suggested resources. Please take a moment to give us feedback on your experience. You can always, always use it uh, to suggest topics and speakers for future wellness talks. To see our other wellness talk sessions, visit the UFHR website at wellness.hr.ufl.edu and navigate to the wellness library from the resources tab. Thank you very much uh, for tuning in and be well. Thank you very much for having me.